The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Blessed in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open the word of God this morning, let's make sure we're uh, in fellowship with the Lord, prepared to study, to concentrate, wide awake, make sure we have plenty of caffeine, See a few fuzzy eyes out there. This is one of those great mornings. I love it. I woke up. The alarm went off at 5.40. I hit the snooze alarm. The electricity went off. I woke up at 7. Let's hope the day goes uphill from there. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much that we have this privilege to study your word. What a phenomenal thing it is in all of human history to have the complete, sufficient revelation that you have provided before us, that we can study it, that we can learn it, that we can transform our thinking according to the absolute standards of your word, and that you have given us your Holy Spirit who indwells us and who fills us. He is the one who teaches us and helps us to understand these things. Now, Father, we pray that you would Help us to think and to concentrate, to understand the things that we will be studying this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, two announcements, I guess. Uh, one is the Easter pageant from North Stonington Bible Church. That is at 6 p.m. on April the 16th. I believe that is next Sunday, next Sunday evening. Also, I uh, spent the last couple of days down in Washington, D.C., went down Thursday to speak in chapel at Capitol Bible Seminary on Friday morning, which was good. They have about maybe 60 or 70 students in there. And I took a text out of John 21 when Jesus tells Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep, and just focused on the fact that uh, that's the priority of the pastorate is to teach. It's not to have choirs. It's not to go knock on doors. It's not to uh, have all kinds of programs and everything else feed the sheep. When it's all said and done, the only thing that's going to matter for a pastor standing before the uh, judgment seat of Christ is, did you feed the sheep? So I think that was well received and uh, spent a lot of, just took a, a PowerPoint projector and everything to sort of convey a little higher standard than I think they're used to seeing, although I was pleased. The president of the seminary down there is a former professor at Dallas that I knew, had lunch with him afterward. And he told me that they had just gotten a grant from the, I think it was the Eli Lilly Foundation for $300,000, and they're going to have two completely computerized classrooms. They're putting in a T1 line, and that's exactly what needs to happen at, at uh, the seminary. Down at Dallas, I understand they're, they're, um, they're getting on the Internet and teaching the students now how to do all their exegesis with tools that are out on the Internet. So it's just phenomenal what the computer revolu- revolution is doing for or pastors. Well, this morning we are orienting to the Old Testament. We're in the 14th lesson, and we are on David and the Psalms. David and the Psalms. If you want to open your Bibles at some place where we will be eventually, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We are going to review a little bit. In terms of the Old Testament and its structure, the first five books are called the books of the law, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, or the Torah. Torah meaning 
usually translated law, but it really means instruction. 1440 B.C. approximately is when that is um, when that is written. 1446 B.C. is the date of the Exodus. Uh, between 1440-1406 B.C. is the time that the Jews are uh, wandering in the wilderness. Then you have the historical books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. These are the historical books that cover the history of Israel from the time they left Egypt until they enter into the and until the um, they're taken out under captivity in uh, 586 BC. In 931 BC they divide into the uh, northern kingdom and southern kingdom and this is referred to as the divided kingdom. The period from Saul, you have three kings, Saul, David, Samuel, I mean, Saul, David, and Solomon, that's the united kingdom. That divides. The uh, northern kingdom goes out under divine discipline in 722 B.C., the southern kingdom in 586 B.C., and then they return to the land in the post-exilic period after the exile, and that's the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So we are now in the uh, early stages of the historical books in terms of our orientation. We're in this area. We've looked at Joshua, Judges, and now we're in Samuel. And last time we looked at the beginning of the monarchy. The other books of the Bible are uh, called the Writings and the Prophets. Job is written sometime during the, probably about the time of the life of Abraham. The Psalms are written. We'll begin to look at the Psalms this morning. The Psalms were written, many by David, but some were written by others. Moses wrote Psalm 90. Many others wrote psalms, and the uh, collection of the psalms really begins under David. So we will, uh, along with our study of David, get an introduction into the psalms. Uh, Solomon wrote Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. And then you have the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, the uh, pre-exilic prophets of the, uh, of the twelve, and then the last three, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, are the last three post-exilic prophets. That's the overview of the Old Testament. Now, last time, or just to orient us to where we are now in a timeline, 1446 B.C. is the time of the Exodus and then 40 years of wilderness wandering, which means they came out, or they came across the Jordan to conquer the land in 1406 B.C. The conquest lasted, the major part of it, the initial part of it, lasted approximately seven years, so that by 1399 B.C., they're in control of the land and they're dividing it up and then from that point on, it's a mopping up operation. From 1399 B.C. to 1350 B.C., you have that consolidation of the land. And by that time, the conquest generation, which is the second generation, you have the Exodus generation, which was carnal and rejected God. You have their children who enter the land and they are primarily trusting God. They are a positive generation and the nation succeeds for the most part, but not completely. They don't annihilate the Canaanites as they are supposed to, and because of that failure, there is the presence in the land of the idolatry of the Canaanites, which eventually culminates in uh, compromise with, with the people. And by 1350 B.C., that conquest generation has died off, and we saw in the, first, uh, in the second chapter of Judges, that another generation came up that did not follow after God. So you have a negative generation at the, con- uh, at the uh, Exodus, a positive generation at the conquest, followed by negative generations that reject the Lord. And the only time they seem to come back to the Lord is when they're in serious trouble. And you see this continuous cycle of disobedience and discipline. And then finally they decide to return to the Lord. God sends a deliverer. And then there's usually about 30 or 40 years of peace. And then uh, they uh, give up and go negative again and go under divine discipline again. That, last, that period of the judges lasts about 300 years. The last three judges are Jephthah, Samson, and then Eli. Eli's introduced really in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. He dies after the battle of Aphek we saw last time. He is succeeded by Samuel, who is the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. He's the last of the judges, the first of the prophets, and he anoints 
Saul as the first king. The people reject God as king of the theocracy. We saw that last time. Uh, because of their disobedience, God uh, allows them to be defeated at the Battle of Aphek. The Ark of the Covenant was taken captive by the Philistines, which is a devastating defeat. We saw that that is a, uh, a symbol of the fact that God has removed His presence from the, from the land because the Ark is the throne of God. It's the sign of the presence of God, the king of the nation. He's taken into captivity. Hophni and Phinehas, the two reprobate sons of Eli, are killed at the Battle of Aphek. Uh, when Eli hears the news that the ark is taken, he falls off his chair. He's 98 years old and corpulent, and he falls off his chair and dies, breaks his neck, and um, it seems to be the end of the priesthood. But there is one grandson of Eli who is born to uh, the wife of uh, <clears throat> Phinehas, and she calls the son, before she dies, she calls him Ichabod, meaning no glory. So every time you would mention the name of this son, you would be reminded that the glory of the Lord had departed from Israel. So this is one of the most depressing times. They finally decide they want a king. God sends them Saul. And Saul is, he's, I think Saul was basically good, but he was not a positive believer. And we saw the contrast last time between Saul and David. It's very interesting. Saul doesn't do anything or commit any sins that seem to us as heinous and as uh, as socially reprehensible as David. David is a murderer. He, he conspires to murder Uriah to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, sometimes you get a picture of David and his mighty men. We glorify that. But we look at Abner and we look at Joab, his, his generals, and sometimes sort of reminds you of watching the Godfather and these are the two hitmen that David has to go out and take care of some of his enemies. So it's a, it's a rugged time. If you get a chance to see the movie, uh, I think it was called David or King David, starring Richard Gere, uh, some of the doctrine's a little fuzzy, but the uh, historical, archaeological uh, background is excellent. David Noel Freeman, who is the editor of the Biblical Archaeologist, of course, he comes from a liberal framework, but he was the consulting, um, he was the historical consultant on that particular film. So if you want to get a feel, it always changes your whole impression of these things because so much our views are, are carried. We think about kings and castles and we have these European concepts of, of monarchy. And you watch this period and you just see it, it opens up with the opening scene and uh, Samuel, I mean Saul has just defeated Agag, just defeated the Amalekites and he, uh, he decides, and oh, we're just going to let Agag live. You know, whatever the rationale is, it's a nice thing to do. We're going to let him, get, God had told him to kill Agag, kill the king, wipe out all the Amalekites, don't kill all the animals, just totally wipe them off the face of the earth and, and Saul refused to do that. And there's this scene, I forget who played, um, played Samuel in, in the movie, but he comes up and he reaches over, it's a powerful scene, he grabs this sword from Saul and just whirls around and just slices Agag's head off just like that. And that's exactly how it's portrayed in the scripture. I mean, these guys were tough and rugged and it's earthy and that's just how it's presented in, in the text. I know that reading through Samuel the first time in the Hebrew, I was impressed with the the language that is used, I'll never forget running across, it's just never translated correctly, and it's about First Samuel 19 or 20, I forget where it is, Saul is out of fellowship, he's carnal, uh, David has just uh, once again done well, and has really angered Saul, and he just turns around, and he's angry, and he's mad, and it's translated something like, your mother was a cur. <laughs> now, I want you to think about that a minute, in terms of what the real vernacular is. You know, nobody has the nerve to translate that USOB. But that's exactly what he's saying. Remember, this is a carnal, angry, jealous king who is talking. He's not going to come back with some nice little English prep school phrase like that. So it's a strong, earthy, powerful book. And, of course, all of that was inspired by God the Holy Spirit, so we know it's absolutely accurate. Well, we looked at Saul and we saw that Saul, Saul's big sin was that he did not kill Agag. And he is, because he fails to kill Agag, he is taken, his, the kingship is taken from him. And in contrast, we saw that David, despite his adultery and murder, is kept on the throne. 
in his confession in Psalm 51, he says, Lord, don't take the Holy Spirit from me like you did from Saul. And the point is that David is truly repentant. The term repentant doesn't mean he's sorry for his sin. Of course, he was. God really took care of him. And, and, uh, and divine discipline on David was miserable for the sin he committed. And uh, he felt horrible. You read some of the penitential psalms that are associated with that. Psalm 27 and uh, Psalm 31, 32 are just... I mean, David is just absolutely miserable. But that's not the point of his confession. That's what God had to do to bring him to the point where he finally acknowledges his sin. But the difference between David and Saul is that David is said to be a man after God's own heart. He has, no matter what else he does, and see, we're all failures at certain times. We commit sins that shock ourselves, that shock other people, and they look at us and they'll say, how can you be a Christian and do that? And the point is that as a Christian, your sin nature is just as bad and just as evil and just as nasty as anybody else's. And every now and then, uh, we let it show. And people look at us like, how did that ever, how did that ever happen? But David has this terrible sin nature, but at the very core of his being, in his, deep in his soul, his basic desires to do what God wants him to do. God's priorities are his priorities. God's way is his way. And that's just the opposite of Saul. Saul does not care about God. He has no concern for divine things or for spiritual things. When the ark is, comes back to the land, he leaves it sitting out in a field during his whole reign. He doesn't care about the ark. He doesn't try to rebuild the tabernacle. He doesn't try to build the temple. He has no concern for that at all. Yet it is David who, as soon as he gains victory in Jerusalem and conquers Jerusalem, takes it away from the Jebusites, that he immediately moves the ark to Jerusalem and then he wants to build a house for the Lord. This is the context that backs up Second Samuel chapter 7. In Second Samuel chapter 5, David has conquered Jerusalem. In Second Samuel chapter 6, David brings the ark to Jerusalem. And then in Second Samuel chapter 7, God will make His covenant with David. Now, the interesting thing contextually, and we're going to come back and deal with the Davidic covenant first and before we get into the Psalms, but it is when David brings the ark into Jerusalem that he begins to develop the corporate worship of the nation through the singing and the hymns. One of the things we should note is when you have all of the mandates in the Mosaic law for worship, there's no mention of singing. Not, I'm not down on singing. But there's no mention of that's not instituted there. It's never instituted. It is as it's always supposed to be. Hymnody is to be a response to what God has done in your life. And that is what how hymnody develops. You have the, the Psalms of Miriam in Exodus, a couple of other Psalms, Psalms of Moses. These are written as responses to what God has done in their life. And so David is the first one who begins to institutionalize to build formal choirs, and he does this and sets up these choirs that sing the, the psalms antiphonally as they bring the ark into Jerusalem. And one of the major themes throughout all of the psalms is that God's name should be sanctified, that it should be set apart and elevated among everything else, and that, that, man, that his name should, should cease to be tarnished and treated lightly by mankind. The whole idea, we looked at that when we studied the, the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, when it says, don't take the Lord's name in vain, that doesn't mean, although I think it's included in some tangential sense, but so often the way that's taught in, in American cultures, that means you never use the name Jesus Christ or God in front of a curse word or something like that. And I think that's just a very small sense of what that means. What it really means to take the Lord's name in vain is to tarnish the name of the Lord in some way, to attach it to an unworthy purpose or cause or to, or to claim that something is the will of God when in fact it isn't. That is what happens, and unfortunately that's what happens in many denominations. I take, think that, that in the true sense of that command in the, in the Ten Commandments, the, the place where the Lord's name is taken in vain the most today is probably in evangelical churches as well as liberal churches because they are attaching the name of God to false doctrines and false causes and everything else and yet they stand up there and they preach their legalism don't don't cuss and don't use the Lord's name in vain meaning don't don't say uh, don't you say Jesus Christ or something else 
and yet they're attaching God's name to their whole doctrinal framework, which is totally false. So it's just a, one of the ironies of history. One of the major issues throughout all of the Psalms is the idea that there is evil in the world and yet God is working to solve evil. And so this brings up the whole problem for us of the problem of evil. This is a typical typical problem that you will run into at times when you're witnessing to people and so I thought that it would be good for us to put it up on the overhead. This is how it's usually presented in terms of an argument. First of all, God is omniscient, therefore He knows that evil exists and that evil would exist. So if God is omniscient, they argue, therefore He knows that all evil exists. Second proposition, God is omnipotent, therefore He is able to rid the world of evil. That's that's how the argument is. He knows evil exists, He's omnipotent, therefore He's greater than evil. If He's omnipotent, therefore He would be able to rid the world of evil. Third, God is holy, so He doesn't want evil. Now, their argument is, if those three things are true, if God is omniscient, omnipotent, and holy, then evil ought not to exist. But it does, so therefore, the God you say exists must not exist. Now, sooner or later, you're going to be witnessing, and somebody's going to say, they may not develop the argument in that precise form. They're going to say, well, how can you believe in God when all this evil exists in the world? How can you believe in a good God that would allow the Holocaust to take place? And, of course, the problem is in the last, uh, last assumption there that God is holy so he doesn't want evil. The point in the Psalms is that God is continuously working in an evil world to redeem it. That man's assumption is, is that God doesn't want evil. He's going to remove it in, on man's timetable. But God has a different timetable. God is working out His purposes in human history and He is removing evil. And that is the whole plan of salvation is to redeem evil and ultimately to, to redeem the entire universe and to remove evil and sin from it. Just because God doesn't snap His fingers and it happens instantly does not mean that, that he, does not have, he is not greater than evil. He has a different plan and He's taking many more things into account uh, uh, in, into account than man does. For example, if to create man as a true volitional creature, you have to, it has to allow for man to make bad decisions and evil decisions. If you take away volition, then, then you end the whole panorama of history and the whole issue, which is human accountability and whether or not men will decide for or against God. So when you bring into play the issue of human volition and human free will, plus God's overall plan, you realize that that the problem of evil is just another attempt of sophistry to try to attack Christianity, and it is based on some basically a couple of false assumptions. But that's a major theme throughout all of the Psalms, is that God is a holy God, God's name should be elevated above everything else, and God is working out His purposes in human history, and He is ultimately going to conquer conquer evil. Now let's look at the Davidic covenant itself in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 5 and following. 2 Samuel verse 5 and following. God is going to make a covenant with David here and this covenant is so important that it's repeated three times in the scriptures. You find it stated in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, Psalm 89 and in 2 Samuel uh, 7, verses 5 and following. After David conquers Jerusalem, David wants to build God a house. Now, there's sort of a play on words in this, in this whole thing. In the Hebrew, there are a number of puns. Apparently, the Holy Spirit likes paranomasias. That's the technical word for a pun. And David wants to build God a house, but God, in turn, is going to make David's lineage a house. So there's this turn of the phrase there that, that brings out the emphasis of the point in the whole context. And of course, if you don't know Hebrew, it just goes over your head, which is why it's important for pastors to always get into and know the original languages. David wants to build God a house, but God reminds David that in the plan of God, David's role is to be a man of war, not a man of peace. And instead of David building God a house, God is going to build David a house. 
They, God wants a peaceful person to build the house, and that will be Solomon. He's not making any negative comments about war. That would be uh, inconsistent with God's whole mandate to carry out holy war against the Canaanites. But he wants a particular type of person to build the house, and that will be Samuel. And in the, I mean Solomon. And in the context of this, God refers to David several times by an important phrase. Look at verse. Go and say to my servant David. Did sound just suddenly come on? Goodness. We haven't had sound on. Have you been recording? Okay. I suddenly got this reverb and I thought I was in a cave. Verse 5. Go and say to my servant David. This is a technical title that is used for only a very elite minority in the Scriptures that, that David is called a servant of God. God says he is my servant. This is the ideal for the uh, spiritual life in the Old Testament and is usually abused. We have a coin from the era of Jeroboam II who was one of the kings in the northern kingdom and he was one of the most wicked kings in Israel in the northern kingdom and he has stamped on this coin uh, Jeroboam, the servant of Yahweh. And that's just an empty boast because he had no clue who Yahweh was, probably was not even a believer, and led the nation, continued to lead them into some of the grossest idolatry in the Old Testament. But God is honoring David as his servant, and we have to take this back to what we've studied in terms of the suzerain vassal treaty forms, that this is the, the treaty with the vassal says, if you do this, thus and so and thus and so, I will bless you. And we saw that as the framework for the Mosaic Covenant. But for the servant who is faithful to the, to the, to the suzerain, to the overlord, then you have another category of grant, and that was called a royal grant, sometimes a royal land grant. And that was the framework for the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, we have to understand how this fits in the Old Testament. The Abrahamic Covenant, God said, God promised to Abraham three things. He promised a land, he promised an eternal seed, and he, he promised uh, blessing, eternal spiritual blessing for all the nations. Now, the land covenant is a, the land paragraph in the Abrahamic covenant was expanded in Deuteronomy, and sometimes that's called the Palestinian covenant or the, I prefer the land covenant since Palestine, the term Palestine comes from the Hebrew word peleset which is the term for the Philistines. That's where that comes from. It's not the land of the Philistines, it's the land of Israel. So I, I don't like the term Palestine at all. That shows a non-biblical view of history. It is assuming that the Philistines, the very use of that term assumes the Philistines have a right to the land. So you should never use that. It is God's land for Israel. But the land covenant is expanded, the land paragraph is expanded in the land covenant. And now the second part of the Abrahamic covenant is the I will give you a seed. And that is expanded in the Davidic covenant. So the land covenant, the land treaty, the, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant all are expansions of sections of the Abrahamic covenant. So therefore, they relate to that concept of a royal uh, land treaty or a royal grant treaty, which is a special blessing given to a faithful servant. Now, the application for this is that the parable where the Lord talks about the landowner who leaves and he gives uh, responsibilities to his servants and when he comes back there's the servants that the one that hasn't done anything with it one has invested and made a little bit one's invested and made more and one's invested and made a lot more and the Lord says to the last one well done my good and faithful servant this is what we want to hear from the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ and so what this is a picture of is the believer's rewards at the judgment seat of Christ that when the believer has a faithful life on earth and is obedient to the Lord, then there are special blessings reserved in heaven for that believer throughout all eternity. And this foreshadows that in terms of how God treats my servant in the Old Testament. So Second Samuel 7 reads like this, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? 
Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, he's talking to, to the prophets, he said, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, in the Hebrew this is Yahweh Sabaoth, which means the Lord of the armies. So it pictures him in terms of his command as the commanding general of the armies of Israel, taking them in to, to uh, the land and conquering the land. It says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a ruler over my people Israel. Now, there's something we have to understand here in terms of the background. Remember, the Bible always needs to be interpreted in the time in which it was written. If you looked at the social structure of, of Israel in terms of all their prejudices and all their biases, the, the person who was on the... If you went to the bottom rung of the social ladder and then dropped about 10 feet below ground level, that's where the shepherd belonged. There was no one in their society looked down upon. It would be somewhat comparable to a street person here. Now, we don't see that too much out in the country here. But you go down to, uh, go to Boston or go down to, uh, to New York or some of the big cities and you'll find the street people out there. And you drive to the street. And I know down in Houston you'll find there's always three or four people waiting at some traffic light with their little squeegees and mops. You know, and they want to clean your windshield so you'll give them a buck or something like that. I think I read a... Uh, investigative reporter followed one around for a while and watched him when he left and he went home and got his, on his way home and changed clothes and got his Mercedes and he was taking down about 75 grand a year. So, in cash, that means he probably wasn't paying tax on any of it. So, he had a good scam going. But a shepherd in Israel at that time had about as much social status and was looked upon with about as much regard and respect as we look upon a a homeless person or street person out there living under a bridge or in a cardboard box down in a city park somewhere. So for God to take a shepherd and to elevate that shepherd to the highest level of society indicates that God does not look on the outside, but he looks on the inside, and the issue is positive volition. And because David came out of the sheepfold, he had learned humility, grace orientation. He trusted God. He had learned to meditate on God and to learn about Him, and that prepared him for his future. It's also interesting that the term pastor basically is brought over. It means a shepherd. That God, and the same thing is true in the New Testament. New Testament times, when at, at, at uh, the birth of Jesus, when the the angels appeared to the shepherds. They were the, the lowest element in society to come and worship. And when God says, okay, I'm going to uh, designate the leaders of the church as shepherds, as pastors, this is not a complimentary term. Every now and then we need to remind pastors that God has chosen to call us by a term that at the time it was developed recognized one of the lowest, least respected elements of society. So we are shepherds because of our of our function to feed the sheep. Now, in the Davidic covenant, God outlines several promises to David. Let's back up. Verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. This is all talking. Notice, it's all in the past tense. This is what God has done for David. He is rehearsing. The great king is rehearsing the blessings that he has bestowed upon his vassal. I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will notice the shift. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all the enemies. That's all past tense. And then it shifts in verse 9 to future tense. I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Now, there's a shift there at verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, that means everything previous to this is what will occur in David's lifetime. But in verse 12, it's, going to introduce what God promises to do after David has died physically. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Now this, of course, is a prophecy related to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and also to, to it, it's a double fulfillment. Initially, it's Solomon, and, and ultimately, it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, that is where it moves from Solomon in the first part to the Lord Jesus Christ in the second part. Verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Now, this is a reference to the house as a whole. Notice how verse 14 cannot be a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. When he commits iniquity, see, he's talking here about the whole house of David as a whole, all of his descendants. He's treating the kingship as if the king is a son to God. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I'll correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So the God's faithfulness would always extend would always extend to the Davidic house. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, if we are to interpret this literally, then this means that, that even though right now there is not a Davidic throne in Jerusalem, for God to be faithful to His promise, He must restore someone to that throne and there must be a literal king on a literal throne in Jerusalem because part of this is, is fulfilled literally. So if part of the promises are fulfilled literally, the future yet uh, still unfulfilled promises must also be fulfilled literally. For example... God promised David that he would give him a great name. And this is fulfilled in 2 Samuel 8.13 when David has conquered all of his enemies and he has a name that goes throughout all the world. He is famous. Uh, Secondly, he promises David to extend the borders of the land which happens in in 2 Samuel 8. You have the uh, rehearsal of all of David's conquests and how he pushed the borders of Israel to almost the greatest extent they ever had. But it still doesn't go all the way to the boundaries that God had promised to Abraham back in uh, Genesis chapter 15. And God promised that he would give David rest at the end of his life, and this is fulfilled, seemed to be fulfilled in 1 Kings 5.4, that the nation would have rest and peace, and all of this would occur in David's lifetime. So God fulfilled those promises literally, precisely. So if he fulfilled part of the covenant literally, he must, to be consistent, we must interpret even the yet to be fulfilled promises in a literal manner. And the promises to be fulfilled after his death are that he would have an eternal seed. Now, never before had a dynasty been promised to have eternal prosperity or to have an eternal kingdom, that there would be an eternal dynasty. What this means is that there would always be a descendant of David on the throne. And this becomes the tangible symbol of the covenant. Remember I said that all covenants have a symbol. The Noahic covenant has the symbol of the, of the rainbow. The Abrahamic covenant had the symbol of circumcision. The Mosaic covenant had the symbol of the Sabbath. Well, the symbol of the Davidic covenant is that there is a descendant of David on the throne. So the Jews could look to Israel and they could see a descendant of David on the throne in Jerusalem and that was a sign of the Davidic covenant that God was still faithful to His promise. Now, this was almost destroyed by Athaliah. Athaliah was the uh, uh, queen following uh, Jezebel and Ahab, and she also was, was led the nation in idolatry. A wicked, wicked woman who uh, killed, had, all, had 69 of her children killed. She hired an assassin to go in and to wipe out every descendant. Every male child was to be destroyed. And so 69 children were were destroyed, but the high priest had gotten wind of the plot and grabbed the uh, infant Joram, who was about six years old, and hid him in the temple. So he survives, and when he's about 10 or 11 years of age, he resumes the throne as a young boy and eventually leads the nation in revival because he's brought up by the priest in the temple. He is instructed in the law, and then there, he institutes a, a true revival. He takes the people back. He reinstitutes temple worship and he reinstitutes the law. And they rediscover copies of the law that they begin to copy and spread throughout the land. And so there is a, a true revival in the nation Israel under him. And then you come in the New Testament, you come to, to Jesus. But, and Jesus is a descendant. He's the last descendant of, of uh, 
of David. And Jesus is never marries, he never has any kids, and yet Jesus is crucified. So it seems as if the covenant the covenant is over with. But Jesus is like one of those little birthday trick candles. You blow it out, then it comes back. So Jesus comes back and he at the resurrection and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, which is at the right hand of the throne. It is not on the throne. That's something that progressive dispensationalists are trying to do. It's an allegorical interpretation. So David is, Jesus is now on the Davidic throne. But you see, that's the same thing that amillennialists, those who believe in no literal millennium, no literal kingdom, that's what they've been, they've been interpreting those passages spiritually all along. And that's one of the problems with progressive dispensationalism and where Dallas Seminary is going with that is that they're beginning to treat passages and interpret passages in a spiritualized, allegorical way in the same way that amillennial covenant theologians have interpreted those passages and there's no warrant for it. So Jesus is Christ is born of a virgin. Why? Because his father Joseph is the legal descendant. The father Joseph is a legal descendant of David, but he comes through the line of Coniah. And in Jeremiah 22.30, Jeconiah, or also called Coniah, is there's a Coniah curse. In Jeremiah 22.30, the Lord says, Write this man, he was one of the most wicked kings in the southern kingdom, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So Jeremiah 22.30 is known as the Coniah curse. And because of that curse on Coniah, none of his descendants could sit on the throne. Well, his line goes down to Joseph. And then Mary is a descendant of, of uh, another child of David. So Jesus traces his lineage back. That's why there's a difference in the genealogies between Matthew 1 and Luke 4. Luke traces it one way. Matthew traces it another way. Matthew traces Mary's lineage. Luke traces Joseph's lineage. And the point is that Jesus is both by adoption to Joseph a legal heir to the throne, but by his physical lineage through Mary. So he, he, he is doubly qualified. He is doubly an heir to the throne of David. So there's a promise of an eternal seed and secondly, an eternal throne in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And we don't have that now, but it will come about in the future during the millennial reign. And that is also an eternal kingdom for Israel. This is stated in verses 14 and 15. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men, the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So this will go on um, forever. That's the idea. Now, we want to shift gears here and go into the Psalms because with David we are introduced to a formal worship setting in Israel. And we're not going to get very far this morning, but at least we'll get some introductory things said about the Psalms. The Psalms have always been richly appreciated by the people of God, I think because they speak to the very core of our experience. When we read through the Psalms, we read about men and about the nation who are struggling with the problems we all struggle with, faced with the adversities that we all, we all face, and we see how they work through their problems by applying doctrine. That's one of the most important things you should learn in reading the Psalms. Is as you read the Psalms, you see how the writer will think through logically, especially about the character of God and how different attributes of God are applied to particular problems to... <clears throat> in order to provide problem-solving in, in terms of the faith-rest drill. So the Psalms speak to our, our very existence. Now, the Psalms are written by many different people. Uh, David writes most of them, but not all of them. And he, they are the hymns that the, that the Jews sang. They are the words, the lyrics to the songs. And I've always said, if you're going to write good psalms, good songs and hymns that are sung in the church, then let's use the Psalms as our standard in terms of the content of the lyrics. There is content there. There is development. There is thought flow. There is deep theology that you can get into. Now, I recognize that we're not going to be inspired by God the Holy Spirit in writing hymns, but we can at least aspire to writing hymns that have content to them and are not just repetitious uh, words or phrases over and over again 
or that are simply uh, represent or review very superficial ideas. Now, the Psalms are divided into five books. The Psalms are divided into five different books. And each book, the last Psalm or the last verse in each book is a benediction or a blessing. Now, they're divided up like this. Uh, Book 1 covers Psalm 1 through 41. Psalm 1 through 41. And at the end of Psalm 41, we read, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and Amen. That's the end of the first book. The second book, book 2 of the Psalms, goes from Psalm 42 through Psalm 72. And this ends with verse 19 and 20. Now, verse 19 is the... And blessed be His glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and Amen. And then notice verse 20. Verse 20 states, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. But that's not true in our collection of the Psalms. For example, Psalms 142 and 143 are also written by David. So what this tells us is that at an earlier stage in the collection of the Psalms, there was a collection where all the Psalms of David were collected in the first 72 Psalms. Then as other Psalms were written by other people throughout the history of Israel, those were added, the collection was rearranged, and it is in a different form today than it was at one particular time, which relates to what's called the progress of revelation. God doesn't dump everything at one time in history. He has revealed himself incrementally over time so that Abraham did not know as much as Moses did. Moses did not know as much as David did. David doesn't know as much as Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't know as much as as Paul or as John. And I think that that even though I think the apostles had a knew a lot more than they wrote about and they had a tremendous grasp of what they wrote, I think that we understand some things even better than they did because we've had 2,000 years to reflect upon the details of what they've written and to really understand all of the and to unpack all of the ideas that were there. It's not that they didn't believe them, it's that they're not as fully aware of all of the implications of what they're writing as we are today because we've had more time 2,000 years have gone by to study and flesh out the meanings of everything that they wrote. So this indicates, verse 20 indicates a different collection and that makes sense within the uh, development of canonicity. Book 3 covers chapters 73 through 89, ending with the benediction in Psalm 89.52, Blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. And then book 4 covers Psalm 90 through 106 and ends with Psalm 1648. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting, and let all the people say Amen and praise the Lord. Now, the term praise the Lord is one you find frequently in the Psalms, and in the Hebrew it is the word Hallelujah. Yah is the abbreviated form of Yahweh. Hallelujah is an imperative form of the verb Hallel, to pray. It is a command. It is not a declarative sentence like so many Christians use it. Well, something happens and you say, well, praise the Lord. Well, that is such a trivialized use of what this means. It is a command to praise the Lord. And if you, and we'll see the, the root concepts of what it means to praise the Lord when we get a, into a look of the praise psalm a little later on. So book 4, Psalm 90 through 106. And then book 5, the last collection, from 107 to 150. And Psalm 150, the last psalm, is just one long extended uh, benediction or praise to the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. That would be in the temple. Praise Him in His mighty expanse, that is in the heavens, outside. Not just in the temple, but outside as well. And we're going to see this as... as um, sort of antithetical parallelism. We'll study parallelism in a minute. But see, this is a contrast. One Praise in the sanctuary, praise him outdoors. What, what are you, what's he saying? Praise him everywhere. It's like a, it's a merism. It's like heaven and earth. That means the whole universe. Day and night con- means continuously, all the time. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp 
and lyre. Now, there's all you know. I, I've never understood this. When you get into talking about music, there's there there are traditionalists. I know you don't know that. Don't believe that living in New England. But there are there are traditionalists around who who believe that you can only have organs and pianos in in the um, in church, and they they don't want to have guitars and they don't want to have drums and they don't want to have cymbals and all this. Now that's a matter of taste, but it's not a biblical thing. See, harp and lyre. Lyre is very similar to early, early form of a guitar-like instrument. Timbrel, dancing, that's like a stringed instrument, like a guitar. Timbrel's like a, a tambourine. Loud cymbals. I mean, when, when the, the Jews are typical of Mediterranean people, they are very effusive in their demonstration of praise. They're not like uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Western Europeans who, who want to be a little restrained and hold back their emotions and and just sit and be primarily cerebral and not effusive. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just cultural. And I think that it's, it's just as wrong for some churches to read passages like this and say, oh, we have to act like the Jews do, as it is to try to force other cultures who are more emotional than, than uh, white Europeans are to be less emotional. I mean, that's just a cultural thing. That's not an absolute. Don't make issues out of that. But today we live in a dynamic where a lot of the music that is being developed, and you want to bring in your little stage band and have a worship and have a worship leader. For 1,900 years, the worship leader has been the pastor, not the song leader. Song leader is the song leader. The worship leader is the man who teaches you how to what God has said, so that you can in turn worship Him. Worship is a response to what God has taught you. If you don't know God, you can't worship God, and you can only know God through the teaching of God's word from the pulpit. So the singing is a form of worship, but that is a lesser form of worship than the teaching of God's Word. So I really react to this whole modern trend to call the song leader the worship leader. But they get the band up there, and all of this is really flows from an underlying uh, idea that we have to make the church more culturally compatible with what unbelievers experience outside so that when they come to church, they'll feel comfortable. Now, I don't think that we should try to make unbelievers feel uncomfortable in the church but unbelievers ought to realize that when they come into a church, there is a different culture operating in that church. It is a culture that has developed its music, its worship, its forms, everything from the revelation of God. They should not come in and hear music that is reminiscent of what they hear on an oldie-goldie station, a rock station, so they don't realize that there's no cultural incompatibility. And this is a problem today in church growth movements and everything else, is let's make the church comfortable for seekers. Well, seekers are people that I call curious but not positive. And I would rather have a church that is aimed at teaching the truth of God's Word because positive people, people who really want to know the truth, will respond. I do not want to spend waste and ministry on people who are curious and not positive. Ultimately, it is the God, the Holy Spirit's job to make the truth clear. And if people are positive to the Gospel and positive to the Word, they'll come. And I would rather have a church of 20 people who wanted to go somewhere in the spiritual life and learn the Word then have a church with 20 people like that and have 200 or 2,000 in the church because then you just have either a bunch of spiritual babies who are just <clears throat> messing their spiritual diapers all the time and you're constantly just babysitting, which is exactly what happened. Earl, I love Earl Rodmark. He's a chancellor of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary. So the problem with evangelicalism today is that it's, it is the world's largest nursery, and none of the nursery workers have a vision for getting anybody out of the nursery. Think about that. And that's the problem is that most pastors have no clue how to get people from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, and that's not the goal of the church. The goal of the church is to worship. The goal of the church is evangelism, and all that's good, but that's not the goal that God gave us. The goal that God gave us is to take people to spiritual maturity. If you don't want to go to spiritual maturity, fine, there's the door. We're here to take you to spiritual maturity. And I'm not here, I mean, my role as a pastor is not here just to entertain or just to give nice little feel-good, warm, fuzzy sermons and hug everybody and tell you how wonderful life is going to be. That is not the biblical concept of the pastoral ministry. So we have to start with what the Scripture says, and if people out there who are just casually curious don't like it, well... That's too bad. They can find something that stirs their glands down the street. Psalm 150. Praise Him with the trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipes. 
Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And then the final command, praise the Lord. Now, most of the Psalms are Davidic, and I think it's helpful. I'll never forget the first time I began to learn this. Before I ever went to seminary, back in the days when Bible churches actually taught people the Bible. Friday when I was speaking in chapel at, at Capitol Seminary, and I taught on feeding the sheep, I, I used as part of my illustration the fact that when I was in, when I grew up in Houston, there might have been, uh, if I said 20, I would be stretching it, 15 maybe Bible churches that were mostly pastored by Dallas Seminary graduates. And I knew most of those men because of the work that I did with Campanile, Christian camping, and had a lot of kids coming from most of those, most of those churches uh, during the summer. I got to know most of those pastors and I heard them and they were good teachers. And you learned a lot from those teachers. And when I went back to Houston in 1990, I went around and visited a number of Bible churches in Houston. Most of them now are pastored by Dallas grads, but some of the same guys were still pastoring. And I was amazed at how diluted their messages were. Guys who were teaching three or four times a week in the 60s and early 70s were now teaching once a week. And their sermons were predictable. They were short now, they're 25, 30 minutes, because everybody's been infected with this idea that we have to make the church comfortable for the unbeliever. So let's not challenge anybody too much. My goodness, somebody might grow. So you go in there, and, and or they might be offended, and goodness, they might not come back. So I, I went around and visited, and I was appalled. Out of a, Now there's about 50 Bible churches in Houston, and out of that, I, I know of, well, when, in 1990, there were two I knew that were teaching anything. And now I think there's maybe four uh, guys I know down there that are teaching to one degree or another. And a couple of them, of course, are teaching a whole lot more than others. But the problem is that, that they've lost the vision for, for what it's all about. And the head of the Greek department down there at Capitol came up to me and afterwards, and he said, you know, and, and Dr. Edgar is just a great, old, wonderful guy, uh, graduate of the Naval Academy, Marine Corps officer, graduate of Dallas Seminary with his doctorate degree. And uh, one of Dan's favorite friends. Incidentally, I'll give a little update on Dan next hour. He's doing great. We spent quite a bit of time together. But um, Dr. Edgar came up to me and said, You know, Robbie, before I ever went to seminary, I knew that in Revelation 17 there were three different positions, and I knew the strengths and weaknesses of every one of those positions because that's what I was taught in church. Now, when I get students coming to seminary, they don't even know what Revelation 17 is about, much less that there are three different positions and what the strengths and weaknesses are. Churches aren't teaching anybody anything anymore. It's tragic. And we have to learn these things. And some of the, all of this stuff I learned before I ever went to seminary, and it really just opened up the Psalms to me. So we're going to take a few minutes to understand the background of Hebrew poetry and how these things are set up so the next time you read through the Psalms, you can read them with a little more intelligence and perhaps get a little more out of it on your own. The nature of Hebrew poetry is based on two things, rhythm and parallelism. Now, I'm not going to say anything about rhythm. You wouldn't understand it anyway. It's based on Hebrew accents, and you've got to read it in the original or, or you just miss it. So we'll have to skip that. But the most important feature is parallelism. In English, when we write a poem... Often there is a rhyming of words. There's assonance or consonance or something of that, that nature. And there's similarity of sound and vocalization in the word. And that is rhyming the word. In Hebrew, there is a rhyming or paralleling mirroring of ideas from sentence to sentence. So it's not a, not a rhyming of words, but of ideas. There are various different types of parallelism. And I'm only going to go over three or four of them, but there's about six or eight. These are the most predominant ones. The first is synonymous parallelism, which is exactly what it sounds like. The parallel is synonymous. It, it, it reflects the same thing. In the first line, you state the point, and then in the second line, you repeat it in almost exactly the same way. Now, it'll pick up similar nuances. What's interesting is when you use synonyms, sometimes one word is broader than the word that's used in the next paragraph. And it helps you understand word meaning. For example, when, when David confesses his sins, he says, Lord, I confess my sin to you. And the next line he says, I acknowledge my wrongdoing. Well, in the second line, he's saying the same thing he said in the first line. But what you learn by examining the synonyms 
is that acknowledge is a synonym for confess, which helps you understand that confess isn't weeping and wailing and, and beating yourself in self-flagellation to convince God you're sorry for your sins. It is simply acknowledging your transgression to God. And so by looking at this, we can gain a lot of insight into different things and, and different words and different ideas. So let's look at some examples. Psalm 2. Psalm 2, 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? This is looking at how all the nations are really... Ultimately, I think this is fulfilled at Armageddon, but it pictures all of history, how human nations are always antagonistic to God and portrayed as being in, in uh, conflict with God. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. See, that's, that's a, a synonym. The first, the nations and the peoples are the same thing. They're in an uproar, and it's, it's, it's a little more specific in the second line. The uproar is defined as they are, they have vain planning, empty planning. They're trying to do something they'll never accomplish. They're trying to act like God. Psalm 2 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together. See how that just is it's saying the same thing, just slightly different form. Against the Lord, and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters. Fetters are like chains and bonds. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Well, that's God. He's laughing. The Lord scoffs at them. See how it mirrors. One line mirrors the idea in the other line. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Then the second form of parallelism is emblematic parallelism emblematic parallelism. In this, you state a line. first line states its concept. And then the second line will sort of picture, illustrate, or elucidate what is said in the first line. It will expand it. It develops it. It doesn't just restate it. It goes on to develop it a little further. Psalm 23 is a great example of emblematic parallelism. The Lord is my shepherd. That states the point in a somewhat metaphorical way. And then, then you get the implication of it, the expansion of it in the second line, I shall not want. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You see the development. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, lies, he leads me beside quiet waters. Those are different ideas. One develops the next. He restores my soul. I think that in the original, he restores my soul, goes with those first two lines. You have two lines. He leads me. He, there's metaphor there. Makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. What does that mean? Literally, he restores my soul. The first two are metaphorical, illustrative. The third line, he restores my soul to the point. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Sort of a concluding sentence. That even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. And then you have the expansion. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So thou art with me. How? Your rod and your staff comfort me. It expands the idea. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil. So not only have you taken care of all of my needs in the presence of hostility, but it goes a step further to where you have treated me in a special manner. You've anointed my head with oil and you have given me abundant blessing. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then synthetic parallelism. You state a point in the first line, and then you expand it in the second line. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, it bumps it up a little, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And then you have antithetical parallelism, which is where the, the two lines contrast with one another. first line is the opposite of the second line. Psalm 1, 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. By stating it in contrast, it makes its point. Many of the Proverbs are based on antithetical parallelism. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So by contrast, it makes the point. Psalm 10:19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Very nice way of saying be quiet. Proverbs 12:1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. 
Now, more than 50% of the Old Testament is in poetry. Much of the prophets are in poetry. Almost every time God speaks, it's written in a poetical form. So that to understand these dynamics of Hebrew poetry really helps you understand what's going on as you're reading the Scripture on your own. Now, next time we'll come back and we'll look at the categories of psalm. There's about five or six different categories of psalm. If you can understand the kind of psalm you're reading, it will really help you see its application and implication for your life. So we'll come back and begin with that next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we thank you for your your word, your faithfulness. We thank you for just all of the doctrines that are there and the, the, the complexities of your word and how no matter how much we study it, there is so much more to learn and to understand and so many things that challenge us and bring us back to the fact that you are the purpose for everything in the universe. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. All that is necessary is faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we would be challenged by the things we've learned, that we'd have a greater understanding and appreciation of all that you've done in, in revealing yourself to us in your word and that we might be challenged to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.